Well, today marks the final Sunday of Advent, uh, which, as we've been saying, simply means coming or arrival, and is uh, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas that we as Christians use to celebrate the coming, arrival, or birth of Jesus, the Son of God who was born as one of us. In this Advent, we've been reflecting on Christmas blessings, on the blessings that flow into our life because Jesus was born as one of us. And we've been doing that by considering what church tradition recognizes as the four earliest songs celebrating the incarnation or the birth of the Son of God. And four weeks ago, we began with a somewhat comical reflection on popular conceptions of what it means Uh, to be blessed by considering the internet sensation hashtag blessed. And if you remember from way back then, what we said is that people, when they say hashtag blessed, really mean is hashtag bragging. I'm so blessed by how good I've got it, and I want everyone to know about it. And yet what we've been seeing as we consider these Christmas songs is that true blessing results in trusting and rejoicing in Christ. The true blessing always has a reason to rejoice, no matter what circumstances we might find ourselves in, even in the midst of suffering. And last week we saw that true blessing is for the lowly. It's for those who recognize they have need of a Savior. And today we'll conclude our Advent series by considering what the Lord's blessing is like as we turn to what we just heard read, Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 35. And we'll see that the Lord's blessing has four characteristics. The Lord's blessing requires waiting. It centers on Jesus. It's for everyone. And it reveals our hearts. But before we dive into God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Again, we thank you that in it, you have shown us who you are, what you're like, and what you have done for us. Today, as we come to your word, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would help us to see Jesus. We would come to love and treasure him all the more as we consider how great a blessing it is that he came. Lord, please help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately so that Jesus would be exalted and we would leave here treasuring him more. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 2, verse 22. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to use one of our community Bibles, either under your seat or the seat next to you. That'll help you to follow along as we go. And if you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, you can find Luke uh, chapter 2, verse 22 on page 857. Uh, You'll be looking for a big, bold uh, 2. That's a chapter followed by a small number, 22. That's a verse. And then once you've found it, just take a moment to quietly prepare your own heart to receive God's word. Uh, You know what distractions you may face this morning as we celebrate Christmas. Uh, Take a moment to surrender those and ask that the Lord would speak to you. If you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. ready. Wonderful. Look with me at Luke chapter 2, verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, 
a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Here we see that the Lord's blessing requires waiting. The Lord's blessing requires waiting. After Jesus' birth, Mary and Joseph, his parents, uh, took him to Jerusalem in accordance with uh, two Old Testament laws. Uh, in Leviticus 12, we find that a woman, 40 days after she's given birth, needs to go to the temple to offer sacrifice for purification. And in accordance with Exodus 13, every firstborn child needed to be presented to the Lord in remembrance of how God delivered Israel from Egypt, killing every firstborn son, yet sparing those who had the blood of a lamb over their doorpost. And as they take Jesus to Jerusalem in obedience to the law, we learn that they do so offering doves or pigeons, the sacrifices associated with those who are poor, those who couldn't afford to offer the normal sacrifice. A big picture here, what we see is Mary and Jesus are being obedient to the law. And Jesus, all the way, even from the time of his birth, is coming to fulfill the law, not abolish it. But as they're in the temple, they're introduced to a man named Simeon. We don't know much about him, but he's described as a man who is righteous and devout. He's a faithful man, a man who loves the Lord. But much more fundamentally, he's described as someone who's waiting for the consolation of Israel. This is Luke's way of saying Simeon is one who is looking for the promises of God to be fulfilled, specifically the promises of God found in Isaiah, that God would comfort his people after they have faced judgment for their rebellion and sin. But Simeon is also waiting for, anticipating, not just these promises for all of God's people would be filled, but for a promise specifically to him. He's waiting for a specific promise that the Holy Spirit has revealed to him, that he would not die until he's seen the Lord's Christ. A promise that he would begin to see the fulfillment of the consolation of Israel. That he would begin to see God comforting his people through the birth of this Messiah. And so Simeon has been waiting to experience this blessing from the Lord. A blessing of comfort after rebellion. And a blessing of seeing the Messiah, the Christ, come to begin to enact all of God's promises. And although all of us don't have specific promises like Simeon, all of us, all of God's people, are awaiting people. We have promises that we are to wait on and eagerly anticipate, especially the promise that Christ would not just come once, but come again. There will be a second advent when Jesus returns and sets all things right. And so all of God's people are characterized by waiting. All of us should wait with eager anticipation. And we don't know exactly how long Simeon had been waiting, but given that the promise is simply he'll see the Christ before he dies, it's a good chance he's been waiting a long time. But we do know Israel has been waiting at least 400 years. The last revelation up to these moments in Luke has been 400 years since the last time they've heard God speak a word of truth. Last time they've heard God utter a promise. And so God's people have been waiting for 400 years, 10 generations, 10 lifetimes of people being born, growing up, dying, having more children to repeat again. 
They've been waiting all that time. And Simeon in particular has been waiting for God to fulfill his promise. In fact, it's so common for it to take what feels like a long time for God to fulfill his promises. Peter would remind us in 2 Peter 3 that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but he is patient towards you. Which reminds all of us that just as God's people waited eagerly and with great patience for Jesus to come the first time, part and parcel of the Christian life is to wait. We wait for all of God's promises, but especially the blessing of Christ coming a second time. As one theologian describes another moment, another letter in the gospel or in the scriptures, John's response at the end of Revelation should characterize Christians' heart in all ages. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. True Christianity trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or as Paul would say, our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a day it is that we are waiting for. Just as Simeon waited for the consolation of Israel, for the comfort of God's people after they've suffered from their rebellion, we wait for a day when all things will be set right, when Jesus will wipe away every tear from every eye, when death shall be no more, when there shall be neither mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. So if you would, imagine with me a place where all wickedness will be removed and evil will have no sway. Imagine a place where church splits will be reconciled and broken relationships will be mended. Imagine a place where there's no more hiding, no more shame. Imagine a place where the kiss of righteousness will be embraced by all and the appearance of a holy God will not bring fear, but awe. This will be a place where righteousness is done, not just occasionally or subversively, but a place where God's righteousness rules. This is a place where righteousness will completely be at home. This is the blessing that we're waiting for. But we await the return of our Savior, not passively, just sitting on our hands. But we do so actively. We have a work to do as we wait. As Simeon himself would give himself to leading a righteous and devout or faithful life. Peter would also go on to exhort us in view of the coming of Christ a second time in Second Peter what sort of people ought you to be? But with lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. One of the truly remarkable ways the scriptures describe the second coming of Christ is that we can hasten the day. We can hurry the day. How? By the way we live our life. By leading holy and godly lives. We are to live our lives in such a way that we please God. Or as Jesus would make clear again and again in the parables found in Matthew 24 and 25, in light of the fact that our master might return at a time we don't expect, that we don't know, we are to, with a sense of urgently, live ourselves as faithful stewards, giving ourselves to the work he has entrusted to us, especially the work of making disciples of all, of all nations. Or as Paul would indicate, one of the ways we awaken our hearts, we stay alert to these spiritual realities, is to give ourselves to persevering prayer, calling upon God to keep his promises, saying with John, as we heard earlier, come, Lord Jesus, come. 
the Lord's blessing requires waiting. But as we wait for that day when sorrow will give way to joy, when our pain will be comforted, we have a work to do. We give ourselves to holiness and godliness. We give ourselves to urgent, energetic mission, telling others about Jesus, helping one another to follow Jesus more faithfully. And we give ourselves to persevering prayer, crying out to God as we wait through the sorrows of this life. The way our statement of faith puts it, the coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy. And as our blessed hope, it motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. Just as Simeon waited for the Lord to fulfill his promise to him, we are a waiting people. The Lord's blessing requires waiting. Second, look with me at verse 27. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Second, we see the Lord's blessing centers on Jesus. The Lord's blessing centers on Jesus. As Simeon is waiting on the Lord, when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus into the temple, the Holy Spirit leads Simeon to go be there present as well. And they... The parents actually bring Jesus to him to do for them according to the customs of the law. As I've already mentioned, this is telling us even as a baby, Jesus has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. As Paul would write in Galatians, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Jesus was born to fulfill the law that we might be redeemed. Now, it's likely, and we see this all over Luke, if we were to continue reading it, that what God's people thought redemption was, was deliverance from their Roman oppressors. There would be a deliverer who would throw off the shackles of Roman rule. However, amazingly, Simeon recognizes that the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel is not first and foremost about being delivered from their political enemies, about being redeemed from Rome, but rather the redemption of the long-awaited Messiah is first and foremost about being redeemed from our sin so that, as Paul said, we could receive adoption as sons and daughters so that we could have a relationship with God once again. Notice in particular when Simeon receives Jesus into his arms, he's holding Jesus as a baby. What does he say in verse 30? I've seen your salvation. God's people haven't been delivered from Rome. He hasn't even yet been delivered from sin. And yet, he has seen the salvation of God. Which reminds us that first and foremost, salvation is a person. Salvation is Jesus. All these things that God would accomplish for us through Christ... Is fundamentally so that we might know Christ, so that we might have Christ. One common way that the contemporary evangelical church talks about salvation is to emphasize forgiveness, justification, redemption, heaven, being rescued from hell. And certainly all of these things are blessings we receive through what Christ has accomplished for us. 
the things worth rejoicing in, holding on to. But we must never forget the goal of all that stuff is knowing Christ. This is why Simeon would celebrate seeing God's salvation when he receives the baby Jesus. This is, again, why Paul would write that Jesus was born under the law. Why? To redeem those under the law. But what's the reason under the reason? So that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters of the living God. The point of our forgiveness, the point of our redemption, the point of everything is so that we might know Christ. So that we might know God as his sons and daughters. Or as the way the late J.I. Packer would put it, the heart of the gospel is adoption through propitiation. In other words, the heart of the gospel is that we get to have God as our Father because Jesus satisfied His judgment for our sin when He went to the cross. And so Packer continues, the point of our salvation is that we might have God and that God might have us. And so if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as their Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls our worship and prayers and our whole outlook on life, that means that we do not understand Christianity very well at all. So dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I'd ask you this morning, what is it that you treasure most when it comes to your salvation? How would you feel if you gained forgiveness, but you did not gain God as your Father? How would you feel if you gained freedom from sin and the law, but you did not gain Christ as your brother and friend? How would you feel if you got into heaven, but Jesus wasn't there? One of the great dangers of the Christian faith is to come to treasure the blessings of Christ more than we treasure Christ himself, which is why our vision as a church is to treasure Jesus above all else and make much of him. The Lord's blessing centers on Jesus. Third, look with me at verse 31. My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Here we see that the Lord's blessing is for everyone. The Lord's blessing is for everyone. Simeon goes on to recount not only how he has seen salvation in receiving Jesus, but also how God has prepared this salvation in the presence of all people. This baby, in other words, is not only for the consolation and comfort of Israel, but a light for all nations, for all people. This baby will bring light and glory of salvation not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. He's the Savior of the whole world. So all the nations... Come to him for light and life. And what's so astounding about this, particularly as we read the rest of Luke's gospel, is that the Jews of Jesus' day thought that the Messiah would deliver them from their political enemies by destroying their political enemies. But instead, what we find is the Christ, the Messiah, delivers the people of Israel by delivering them and all people from their true enemy, which is sin. Now, personally, I feel like we've been hammering this theme for weeks, if not months, as we've considered Acts and Luke's. And yet this may remind us of how central this theme is. 
that the gospel, his salvation, is for all people, not just people like you and me. From the very beginning, we see our God is a missionary God who is redeeming a people for himself, not from one ethnicity, not from one age group, not from one language, nation, or any demographic, but rather, as Revelation tells us, the Lord is ransoming by his blood a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Which means the blessing that the Lord offers us is for both men and women, rich and poor, young and old, white and black, Asians and Hispanics, for educated and uneducated, for conservatives and progressives. It's for the famous and the infamous. It's for oppressor and the oppressed. It's for the religious and the irreligious. It's for the powerful and the weak. It's for the wise and for the foolish. If you can imagine any way you would divide society, it's for those people too. And perhaps the reason why Luke would remind us of this so often throughout this gospel, but also in Acts, is because of how easy it is to forget the universal call of the gospel. How easy it is to forget that salvation is for all people. And how easy it is to begin to assume that God really only works in people just like me. And sadly, when it comes to the Lord's blessing, His great work of salvation... This means we're often tempted to think that his salvation is only for people like us, and so we should only befriend people like us. We should only offer the gospel to people like us, because after all, only people like us will respond to the gospel in faith. But our God's missionary heart for all people invites us to have the same heart our God does, including towards people who are not like us. And this is what we long to be true for our church family, and what it means for us to be a reconciled community. We aim to demonstrate that our community is united because of Christ across every barrier that could divide us. And so just as Jesus came all the way from heaven to be a light for all people, God's missionary heart beckons all of us to go out of our way, to build relationships with people who are not like us, to build relationships with all kinds of people, hoping, praying, that God would bring a light of salvation to them too. And as we give ourselves to this kind of ministry, this kind of universal call of the gospel for all people, we pray that our church would reflect the diversity of the Bay Area and become a church that gives the community around us a glimpse of the age to come when people from every tribe, tongue, nation, ethnicity, and generation will all worship Jesus together with one voice. And because Jesus is a light to all people, this shapes our own hope for our church community. We've said this again and again and again, but what unites our church is not our common interests, musical preferences, age, ethnicity, nationality, financial status, education, stage of life, or as we go into another election season, our political convictions. And as we go into another season of election, we do well to remember we're, un we're not united around our political convictions. We, as Christians, might disagree about things related to immigration, criminal justice reform, taxation, big or small government, the best way to advocate for pro-life policies, and we could go on the list of all the ways Christians might disagree about what it means to be faithful to God. Because what we, don't, what we aren't united by is our political convictions. Instead, what we're united by is our common faith in Jesus Christ. 
And so if you talk with brothers and sisters about politics this year, let me invite you to do so without assuming you're on the same page, without assuming that you agree, because that's not what unites us here in this church. What unites us is the fact Jesus came for all people. And he has made us one body out of many members through the cross and resurrection. And we want this to be demonstrated through our relationships with each other. And beyond politics, practically, our congregation is made up of people who are young and old, people who are married with lots of kids, people who are married with no kids, single people, people who are highly educated, people with no education at all, and people with all sorts of different personalities. And what's most natural for all of us is to hang out with the people who are just like us, where it's really easy to get along, where conversations just take place naturally, And there's nothing wrong with those friendships. It's part of human nature. And so if you're retired, you'll get along well with the other retired people. If you're a young family, you'll feel right at home with other young families. If you're single, you'll feel right at home with other singles. And those friendships, I trust, will be really good for you. But if all your friendships in this church, look, are friendships with people that are just like you, I would be so bold as to saying you're wasting your time here. Part of what it means for us to be a church is loving people who are different than us. We're getting to know them. There's a little bit more work. It requires a little more patience. Our relationships require more charity and more grace. It makes us a little more uncomfortable. But it's relationships like that where the world really takes notice. And it sees us investing in people we have little to gain from. And so I'd urge all of us to periodically take stock of our relations. Perhaps at the end of a year, looking towards a new year, this would be a good time to look at our relationships and ask, do all of our friends fit the same mold? And if the answer to that question is yes, then make 2024 a a great effort to break out of that mold. When you're deciding who you're going to talk to after a Sunday morning service, at least 50% of the time talk to a guest or another one of our members you don't know so well that make you a little uncomfortable even. Seek to draw people into your life from all sorts of backgrounds. Simeon's thanksgiving to God tells us that salvation found in Jesus is for all people. It's a universal offer. It's for everyone. And yet this gospel, which corporately unites all people together, also divides all people at the level of the heart. Look with me at verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Here we see that the Lord's blessing reveals our hearts. The Lord's blessing reveals our hearts. In response to the blessing that Simeon pours out on God, Mary and Joseph marvel at what's being said about their son, Jesus. Jesus is the one Simeon has been waiting for. He's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Jesus is the one in which salvation is bound up with. All of salvation is about Jesus. And Jesus is born as a light to all people. This astounds Mary and Joseph. And yet, Simeon then blesses his parents, and Mary in particular, saying that Jesus 
is appointed for the falling and rising of many. Jesus is a sign that will be opposed. And that Jesus is these things so that the hearts of many would be revealed. As one pastor writes, Simeon's blessing to Mary tells us that the universal offer to salvation does not mean that it will be universally received by everyone. It's offered to all, but it has to be considered by each. Or another pastor writes, Jesus is a light that exposes. Because he exposes, he will face opposition. And that opposition will be a violent piercing. A piercing that will penetrate his mother's heart also. Now why is this the case? Why will Jesus, the same person, be arising for some, falling away for others? Why will Jesus attract some but repel others? Because Jesus' life and teaching demand that we either accept him and receive him as Simeon did, or we oppose him. Jesus does not mean to leave room for us to stay neutral towards him. And if right now you feel neutral towards Jesus, neither joyful over what he's done nor angry at what he's called you to, that means you've not really considered the real Jesus. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in Mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Well, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Consider what Jesus has said. Although Jesus is salvation, his salvation is a sword. He claims that he is the only way to the heavenly father. He claims that if you will follow him, you must take up your cross and deny yourself. In short, Jesus claims your entire allegiance, your exclusive devotion, your wholehearted obedience. And so if you would come to Jesus, he says, I am your master and you belong to me. With claims like this, you can see why you can't remain neutral. You can either say, no, you're not my master. No, I'm not giving my whole life in obedience to you and live in rebellion against him. Or you can embrace him completely surrendering wholeheartedly to him as Savior and Lord. But with claims like this, why would anyone want to embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord? Because as the Bible presents him, no one else has ever been as humble as him. No one else has ever been as wise as him. No one else has ever been as powerful as him. No one else has been as good or compassionate as him. No one else has been as gracious as him. No one is as beautiful as him. He is the one who invites the weary to find rest, the hungry to be filled, the thirsty to be satisfied. So on the one hand, who he is, what he said, what he's done and will do, draws us in. It's attractive. It's compelling. And yet on the other hand, it's repulsive. 
because it's a call to come only to him and a call to come and die. And so this causes some to rise and causes others to fall. This is why the apostle Peter would describe Jesus in two seemingly contradictory ways in 1 Peter 2. He writes, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Listen, Jesus is both cornerstone and stumbling stone. He's one and the same. And you have to pick which he'll be. Either he's the cornerstone on which you build your entire life, or he's the stumbling stone on your way to destruction. And so if your heart doesn't soar with joy at who Jesus is and what he's done, or recoil towards him with rejection, then the Jesus you're thinking about is a myth. The biblical Jesus leaves no neutral ground. And your attitude towards Jesus reveals your heart. So perhaps you don't know what you think about Jesus. Maybe you're aware of some sort of opposition to him, but you don't really know where it comes from or how it got there. And it could have gotten there by any number of things that you've been taught or picked up along the way. But the ultimate source of that opposition for all of us is our sin nature. We were born this way, all of us. And our sin, we have this opposition to Christ. We oppose his claim on our lives. We oppose his claim to lordship and deity. And so we rebel against him. But that rebellion will be put down when Jesus comes back. God will not always strive with us in our sin. If we continue in our sin, we will fall. Or rather, we will be put down by God. And Christ was sent. He was born to save us, to bring us into his light. But men love darkness rather than light. Our deeds are evil and we don't want to be found out. But God knows. He sees us in our sin. And in our sin, he sent Jesus as our Savior. And so Jesus is a Savior you either love or hate. The cross says he loves you. Our unbelief and sin say we hate him. But repentance and faith say that we love him. And for our hate, we deserve And we do receive death. And for our love, we don't deserve it, but we receive life. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, I would plead with you, choose life. Choose Christ. Repent of your sin and believe in him so that you might be saved. If you want to know more about what it means to respond to Jesus in this way, please come talk with me or any of our members after the service. We would love to tell you more about what it means to come to Jesus as Savior and Lord. And if you are a Christian, Simeon's words to Mary also bear some significance to us. Simeon tells Mary that as Jesus becomes a sign that will be opposed, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And while Simeon likely specifically had in mind under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the suffering Mary would endure as she watches her son crucified on a cross. The reality is for all who would receive Jesus as their savior, for all who would love Jesus, we too will have a sword pierce our own soul as well. Although a new peace comes with that pain, it comes through conflict. The Lord's blessing to us comes through a sword. Let me just point us to two examples. First, Jesus says, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Listen, according to Jesus, the only way you can find life is by losing your life, by denying yourself and taking up a cross. And the beauty is that in doing that, we really do gain life. We gain peace, satisfaction, joy, and so on. But it only comes by first surrendering our whole life to him. It only comes through repentance, which as the great reformer Martin Luther says, is the whole of the Christian life. And repentance can and is painful. And repentance, we have to admit, we have a selfish, sinful human heart. And repentance, we have to admit, more than that, we can't change our heart. And therefore, we need forgiveness and a power to change it. And our only hope is not ourselves, it's not our work, but the sheer mercy of God. And once we come to him, we forsake and we give up things we formerly loved. This is painful. It's a sword. But it's the only way we will finally experience peace, satisfaction, and gain our soul. It's like rubbing alcohol. You can use it to clean a wound, but in order for it to clean a wound, you must first experience the sting of the alcohol. And it works this way. True repentance recognizes sin beneath the sin. It recognizes that beneath every sinful behavior, thought, or attitude is a failure to believe in the love of Christ and the sufficiency of his death on the cross. And so we confess, Lord, I committed this sin because I didn't believe you loved me. And I didn't believe your love was enough, that your cross was enough for me. So forgive me. And listen, when you repent like that, as soon as you bring that before God, healing enters your life. You can't help but then begin to think of the love of God in Christ, what he's accomplished for you on the cross. And so every Christian who surrenders their life wholly to Jesus gains the whole world through the sword of losing their life. But second, and more directly connected to why Mary would experience a sword, Jesus also says, you will be hated by all for my namesake. For every Christian who comes to Christ, we are told to expect to be hated, expect to be rejected, expect to be opposed. And yet it is also true that as Jesus caused some to rise and some to fall, he says we can expect to have that same effect on others. Paul puts it this way. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So when we have truly surrendered our life to Christ, we can expect that just as Jesus was opposed, we'll be opposed. We'll be the fragrance of death to some. That's not surprising. That's normal. So brothers, sisters, please, if someone opposes you for your faith, doesn't want to be your friend for your faith, thinks you're crazy for your faith. Don't act like that's surprising. Don't act like that's a really big deal. That's woven throughout the New Testament. And yet, don't think that opposition means you're being faithful. It may just mean you're a jerk. Since Jesus also tells us that we ought to expect to be the aroma of life to those who are being saved. 
And so like Jesus, we should expect our lives to be attractive to others. We should expect the way our community lives together to be beautiful to others, simultaneously repelling some, attracting others. Does your life do that? The key for your life doing that is to build our life on Jesus as our cornerstone. The one who gave himself up for us. And allow his grace, his sacrifice, his willingness to enter the world as a light for all people. To move us then to act the same towards others. Being gracious and kind to those who hate us. Entering into their world. Not running away from them, but towards them in love. And although Jesus' life that was given for us is the greatest blessing of all time, it is one that divides human hearts because it reveals our heart's attitude towards God. So the Lord's blessing reveals our hearts. The Lord's blessing is for everyone. The Lord's blessing centers on Jesus and requires waiting. So dear brothers and sisters, let's wait with eager anticipation. Let's give ourselves to holy and godly lives, to energetic and urgent mission, telling others about Jesus, helping one another to grow in Christ. And let's give ourselves to persevering prayer. Let's treasure Jesus above all else, recognizing that he is the supreme blessing. Let's build relationships with all kinds of people, just as Jesus came for all of us. And let's make Jesus our cornerstone not stumbling over him, but founding our life upon him. And so as we conclude our time in God's word this morning, let me invite you to reflect on what God has been saying to you through his word. And perhaps these questions will be helpful to encourage us all to respond together with the obedience of faith. How does your life demonstrate that you're waiting for the coming of Christ with holiness, with urgent mission, and with prayerfulness? Ask God right now if this is a struggle for you to help you live in anticipation of Christ's return. Second, would you be content receiving the blessings of salvation, forgiveness, justification, redemption, heaven, escape from hell, if those blessings did not include gaining a relationship with Jesus? Ask God to help you treasure Jesus above everything else. How do your relationships demonstrate that you really believe the Lord's blessing is for everyone and not just people like you? Thank him for the relationships you do have with people who are not like you. And make 2024 the year you pursue other people who are not like you. And finally, what does your life and your relationship reveal as true of your heart attitude towards Jesus? Is Jesus a stumbling stone or a cornerstone in your heart? Make today the day you surrender wholeheartedly and fully to Jesus as both Savior and Lord. He is worth the cost. Let's take a moment to quietly reflect on what God has been saying to us through his word.
Heavenly Father, Jesus is so good. He is so worthy of our praise, worthy of our obedience, worthy of our devotion. And yet we confess our hearts scream against his rule. We would prefer to rule ourselves and do as we please. And yet we recognize in doing so, we would forsake our life. And so this morning we ask that as we continue to respond to your word, that you would help us to treasure Christ above all else. So that it would not be a duty or a chore, but a delight to surrender everything to him. And help us to value, to love Jesus more than anything else, including the blessings that come with Jesus. Lord, we ask all this because of how great and good and glorious Jesus really is. Help us to worship him the rest of this Christmas season. In the name of Jesus, we pray.